Do you realize that true freedom, I'm talking about absolute, real, honest-to-goodness, true freedom in its consummate form, comes with boundaries, comes with restrictions, and comes with perimeters where you are not to cross. You say, wait a minute, you just contradicted now the whole idea of true freedom. Oh, no, I didn't. Who defines anything and everything in life, in the world, in the universe? God Almighty does. Which means the definition of true freedom is found in here and nowhere else. What I find absolutely mystifying is how some of the most ardent advocates in their minds of real freedom, meaning if it doesn't hurt somebody else, I ought to be allowed to do it. Okay. That's why if I'm 12 years old or I'm 14 years old or I'm 16 years old or if I'm 20 years old, if I want to smoke up, become a pothead, not hurting anybody else, I ought to be allowed to do it. I ought to be free to do that. Well, first of all, sociologically and health-wise and financially and insurance-wise and everything else, I could argue against that just to show you how it does actually hurt other people. But forget that for the time. Let's take that ridiculous idea that, okay, it, it's only you. It really doesn't hurt anybody else. And again, I don't care what they, them, and those say out there. I know from good sources and from unfortunate personal experiences, not my own, that Cannabis sativa is addictive. No, it's not. The experts say that it may cause dependency, but it's not addictive. Fine. You have the freedom to smoke up as much as you want. Then go ahead now and stop smoking your dope. I'll quit any time I want. Then do it. Well, I can't. Ah, so you're not free to quit. What about your pornography? You are free to go on according to the laws of the land. You're free to indulge in it all you want. Now, are you free to quit? No, guess not. And God in his love says real freedom comes with boundaries, with fences, with barbed wire, with electrified perimeters. Because I love you and I care for you. And if you want to be free, you will be free only by the terms that I have defined. That's just the fact the way it is. And as I used to end every one of my commentaries when I was on the radio, that's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. But if it's right, you can't avoid the consequences. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And God's answer in mercy to his people, was to send prophets. Because they would come in the days when the Bible wasn't yet composed, and he would bring the word, the prophet would bring the word from God concerning all things pertaining to life and godliness. And you obeyed them to your joy and blessing, and you disobeyed them to your peril. 
If you want to be free, you do things the way God stipulates. And he sent prophets to continuously call his people back within the boundaries and the perimeters that he established. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. I want to use this as the backdrop to 1 Samuel, giving us the big view first of all, and the joyous picture of why all of this is here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, that's with a capital B, referring to Christ. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of that book, way up in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament, says that God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That is, God was revealing himself and he was revealing the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words for all mankind and for all time through visions, through dreams, through angelic visitations, through mysterious voices, through burning bushes, through cataclysms in nature where God would speak, through other nations where God would use them to discipline his people, through many and varied ways God spoke to his people but chapter 3 begins by saying the word had been in short supply as well as prophecy and visitation the first two chapters of Samuel that we've already been through were setting up and spending the really the focused amount of time on the antagonist versus the hero the antagonists were Eli and Hophni and Phinehas his sons and the hero was young Samuel. Chapter 3 now shifts the focus to the faithful one Samuel. And he is young as he is, thinking about what I said last week about how the expectations placed on little children have changed over the years. Little Samuel now at his tender age is being tested right out of the gate concerning Samuel's prophetic integrity. As young as he is. The sin nature is as old as the Garden of Eden. And corruption is as old as the sin nature. The role of the prophet was a place of high standing and of unquestioned authority. When a prophet spoke in the Old Testament, he was speaking for God very literally. It bore no resemblance to what is sometimes referred to today when someone is touted as being a prophet of God. Today's so-called prophetic utterances emanate from the word that has already been revealed once for all to the saints. And though it comes through the fallible filter of flawed men, God is quite capable of making sure that what he delivers to them is to be delivered without error. The prophetic utterances of Samuel's day, as I said, came directly from God. So when certain movements or individuals today refer or allude to the New Testament gift of prophecy, which is a legitimate gift of the Spirit in the New Testament, but when they start likening the gift of prophecy of the New Testament to their designated prophets and comparing them to the prophets of old, I begin to twitch 
both for their movement as well as for the individual personally. You see, the test for the Old Testament prophet of God was quite simple, and it was quite severe and definitive. The prophet who prophesies of peace, Jeremiah writes in chapter 28, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. On the other hand, Deuteronomy chapter 18 Verse 20 and forward, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, well, well, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, here it is. I said it was definitive and severe. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing that does not come about or come true, that thing is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Why? Because that prophet will die. He was to be executed post-haste, therefore eliminating the abuse of authority and Lying and using a gift of the Lord to manipulate people by thus saith the Lord. If it didn't come true, you're done. Think twice about claiming, I am a prophet of the Lord. Eli as Israel's priest and prophet, as we saw over the first two books, or the first two chapters, failed terribly. And the repercussions of his failure was not only immediately in history on God's people, but also on his family. But of course, we know that God's purposes for history will not go unfulfilled. And now Samuel is the heir apparent, and his character is shown and developed from childhood onward. And he gives every appearance of being the appointed one. But then again, Eli did as well. And in fact, Eli was, but he blew it. So would Samuel be faithful to deliver the word of the Lord regardless of whether it was a positive word or whether it was a negative word? It's a high calling. It's a huge responsibility for which the prophet will answer to the creator. And the greatest single failing of the church at large today, in my opinion, is those who have the New Testament expression of the gift of prophecy, who are called, for the most part, prophet, uh, preachers and teachers, but are unwilling to faithfully deliver both the good and the cheery news as well as the sober and the challenging news. And because of this single flaw in the modern day expression of prophecy, which in the New Testament format means forth-telling, meaning what has already been revealed, not foretelling that which is coming from on high as new revelation. The church grows more and more wayward over the centuries rather than more and more holy. Those whom the Lord loves, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he disciplines. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I can't say that I ever looked on discipline favorably. When I knew I was in trouble with mama, 
Daddy was a soft touch. No problem there. But when I was in hot water with Mama, the fear was in me. And that fear had a constraining influence on me. Because my mother did discipline. In love. Mixed in with a little human flesh there now and again. And so when people talk to me about the fear of God, or I hear preachers on the radio go, well, the fear of God, that doesn't mean fear, like as we talk. Oh, yes, it does. It does. That's not all it means. But you better believe it. It means the knee-knocking kind of fear, because God will not be mocked. And he hates sin today just as much. You don't think God was to be fear. That's Nadab and Abihu. Who? Sons who offered up the offering in Exodus chapter 10, maybe, doing it the way they wanted to do, violating the rules and instructions for the offerings that God had given. It was the last offering they ever offered up. They were smoked, poof, post-crispy critters, or in this case, crispy prophets or disobedient people. Yeah, they weren't prophets. No, God is to be feared. And my mother, you don't know her. She was to be feared. My friends, for crying out loud, feared my mother. They called her the sergeant major. They really did. Sometimes to her face when they were teenagers and twice her size. But she disciplined, and her discipline upon me made a large part of who I am still today. And God is a perfect parent. And so his promising to discipline those whom he loves is good news. It's not bad news. <laughs> Unless you're a wayward child. But even then it's good news because God is trying to bring you back. The role of the prophet in both the Old and New Testaments was not one of prestige. It was not one of safety or of ease. The prophet was, for the most part, the scourge of the community, precisely because they were routinely calling the people to account. They were routinely sent to point out the people's flaws and warning of the wrath which would follow if they didn't turn from their waywardness. The prophet failing to do so is even worse than the oncology doc today who sends his patients away with great news of health and and long life because he just can't bring himself to tell them the truth about the cancer that's racking their body. If we examine the lives of the prophets, throughout the entire history of the Bible, they tended to be destitute, they tended to be discouraged, and chronically depressed. And they were often physically abused by the ones to whom they were sent. They were not celebs. They were outcasts. Think about Elijah. Elijah had gone on a cleansing crusade at God's behest of Jezebel's kingdom. Jezebel didn't have a kingdom. No, I know her husband Ahab did. Jezebel wore the pants and the armor. And Jezebel was one of Elijah's arch enemies. And so he went and he destroyed the prophets of Baal in Jezebel's kingdom. What was the reward for this bold prophet's obedience to God? 
Within 24 hours, there was a contract on his head by Jezebel, vowing that he would not see the next 24 hours alive. That he would be put to death just as he put to death her prophets of Baal. But Elijah, being a prophet of God, filled with the Spirit as God would come upon him, unlike today, he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And what happens is he has an angelic visitation that night that tells him to get up and go to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. We read in 1 Kings 19, Then he came there to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? (laughs) You're hiding out in this cave. Why are you here? And he said, Lord, I've been very zealous for you, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and they've torn down your altars and they killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and now they seek my life to take it away. Oh, just kill me now. What happens next is Elijah receives now a divine visitation from God himself. And it's something on the order of Job's experience, only it's fundamentally different in the way it was done, but basically conveying the same message. Job, I'm God, you're not. Elijah, I'm God, you're not. Elijah sees and he hears numerous manifestations of God's might in creation, each one being positively jaw-dropping and a fearful and frightening experience. Continuing Kings 19, the Lord said to him, Elijah, go return now on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram and Jehu the son of Nimshi. You shall anoint king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abu Mechola. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword, Hazael, from the sword of Hazael, Yehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall put to death. And yet I am going to leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So why is this good news? Well, what he tells Elijah is that he's going to clean house himself. And when he's done, Elijah is going to see that actually he's not the sole woe is me reviving remnant. That there are in fact 7,000 other faithful ones who have not gone wayward to the idolatry of the nations. The only promise that Elijah receives is that he's not alone. There are others just as committed as he is. If I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, that, that's it? That's all you got for me? Okay. Jeremiah. Oh, he's another infamous prophet where the people were concerned. Eminently successful. Not. He was so successful that he's constantly crying to where he's called the weeping prophet. He was not on the A-list of the parties. You're not. You've invited who? Are you serious, Jeremiah? You sit over there in the corner going, hey, what was me? What's done me wrong? 
His whole prophetic ministry was basically one big failure. And after many experiences with God's people, speaking directly for God on behalf of God, warning after warning, calling God's people to repentance, they didn't just ignore him. They were brutal to him. And Jeremiah is right on the edge. I don't mean the edge of glory. You who know, O Lord, remember me, take notice of me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. He's talking about his people. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. He's recounting how faithful he's been. I've been supremely obedient, and look what's happening to me. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult because your hand upon me. I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. So why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? The prophet is having a crisis of faith. He's questioning God. God, will you be to me like an unreliable stream? I thought you were the faithful, the almighty, the powerful one. I've done what you've said, and it's been nothing but failure and misery. Listen to God's compassionate reply. Therefore, this says the Lord, if you return, Jeremiah, meaning go back to the task at hand, meaning go back to the people who've been rejecting you, then I will restore you. Oh, here it comes. Finally, Lord, I knew you would come through. I see private jets. I see mansions. I see book deals. Bring it on. But no, that's not what God has in store. He says, I will restore you. Okay, please define. Before me, you will stand. Sounds good. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, meaning you're going to find maybe a handful, maybe a scant person here and there who actually has a desire for me and will repent. But you have to extract the worthless from the precious. You will become my spokesman if you do that. They for their part, now here comes the best news of all, not they for their part may turn to you. What do you mean, may, Lord? You're the God of promise. Aren't you going to empower this? You could turn a king's heart it's like a river, right? You turn his heart whichever way you want. Tell me they're going to repent. They're going to turn. There's going to be response. I'm going to be a successful prophet. That's not what God says. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, don't you even think about turning to them. Don't you cave. Don't you soft pedal. Don't you sweeten. You stand firm. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you. Wait, wait, what? You mean they're still going to be fighting against me? Yeah. But they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Okay. Again, that's it. Stand tall, be tough, don't bend. That's right. And don't you dare change your message that I have given you. Well, the only promise in the Lord's comfort to Jeremiah is, well, 
I won't let them kill you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm a prophet now. So young Samuel now is on the scene. He is raised up as the next priest and prophet. And his first test, remember, he's still a child. And his first test is a rough one. Now the boy Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Then he ran to Eli and he said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, lie down again. So he went and he lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. This isn't helping my sleep. Marginal note there. Then he discerned that the Lord was calling the boy, and Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if it shall be that he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Where Samuel was innocent and naive of the Lord's words, the sons of Eli, as we talked about the last few weeks, were utterly rebellious, as was Eli, towards the revelation that God had given them. Samuel's ignorance of the word and the Lord's ways were now about to change. Verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. Yeah, enjoy your night's sleep now, little Sammy. And he got up in the morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, I guess a child telling the one who was the leader of God's people, who was Samuel's mentor, who was Samuel's surrogate father, and again, the prophet and priest of God's people. All the promises that God had made to Eli concerning his house and his future were now declared by God himself null and void. And it's not because God broke his promise. It is because Eli and his sons broke covenant with God. And I would be hard-pressed to come up with a single promise of God that is not contingent like that 
The popular mindset today in wayward Christianity is that our relationship to God is only ever a one-way street, meaning God's the one who is on the hook to do this, that, and the other thing. Never us. It's just God. God just does it because he does it because he's God. It doesn't really matter what we do or what he just does it. And the problem is because of the age of grace, or better, to use the phrase that the young Lutheran pastor who was executed because of his civil disobedience trying to put an end to the wicked satanic Adolf Hitler coined God's grace in his day as cheap grace. The church had become complacent about cheap grace. Cheap grace is that the creator of the universe has little to say, little authority and little role in the behaviors and the conduct or the lifestyle choices of those he he created. When God gave us the guidelines for our life, all things pertaining to life and godliness, he summarized them. They certainly weren't in toto. That's what the Bible is for. But he gave them in what the people were ready to grab onto and still are today, and though disfavoring more and more, to the ten suggestions. But God didn't give the ten suggestions he gave the ten commandments and not so much are we ready to concede to that and all that that means for all things pertaining to life and godliness as long as god and his representatives keep god's opinions to themselves and god jumps when we say jump then we'll do him a favor now and again Hmm. isn't god lucky to have us on his side The issue is that we have heard the concept of God's mercy and grace put forth in so many different ways, exclusive of any responsibility on our part that God has become the slave to his creation. God created in man's image and likeness who exists solely to do whatever he is told to do. Lest we be accused, heaven forbid, of being legalists. Oh, you believe you have to work for your salvation. No, we just believe in the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. For the one who is truly saved, they be getting filled with the Holy Spirit, who now begins a lifetime process of sanctification, meaning we become more and more obedient, becoming conformed to the image of Christ. (laughs) And this is perhaps the biggest reason that the human race at large has such a struggle with the idea that there can be tragedy and there can be murder and mayhem and madness in the world if there really is a God. Well, I just can't believe that. And the result is that in self-justifying arrogance, that bereft mother or that bereft father or the crushed husband or the crushed wife or the angry son or the angry daughter reeling at some profound injustice or tragedy in their lives are quick to protest, well, if this is the way God is, I want no part of him. The presumption being that the existence of God should preclude all evil. Oh, it will one day, but not here, not now. And doesn't Satan know where the soft spots are in the soul of man and consequently where to attack at all the right moments? That's why we're told, beware, be of sober spirit, be on the alert for the adversary. Your devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why would God allow 200 girls to be kidnapped by the evil, wicked Boko Haram? Much less still be missing after all of these years. 
Oh, some have been found, some have been left, uh, some have been released, but many, many are still missing. Many are dead. Well, a good God wouldn't let thousands of people die as planes are crashed into the skyscrapers of New York. And a good God wouldn't let 230,000 people die in the Asian tsunami. So God warns us all, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he, the Lord, will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And he uses a word picture to help us understand even further. This is Isaiah 55, by the way, beginning of verse 6. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know, when I am shoveling my third significant snowstorm in about four weeks, I'm not thinking about what I learned when I moved here to Maine that oh, all that white stuff, that's just God's fertilizer. <laughs> yeah? Well, I'm not trying to grow anything in my driveway, okay? I'm not thinking of all the blessings, the unseen blessings of the water that it provides and the poor man's fertilizer. I'm thinking about the tendonitis and the back pains and the inflamed muscles. We rarely see the good work that God has and is doing and has and is accomplishing in and through us. And those are good words for us to recite to ourselves over and over and over again as my wife has been helping me to remember. God's word to Samuel, the first that he's ever heard through any convention, are not the kind of message that anyone wants to be entrusted with, much less to be the one who is tasked now to go give it to the person to whom it pertains. And the Lord tells Samuel to make sure that Eli knows there is no remedy. There are no sacrifices. There is no ritual, Eli, that is going to cover the likes of you and your son's sins. And so in verse 15, young Samuel decides to sleep on it. (laughs) For he's apprehensive of being the bearer of bad news. Verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And Eli here creates a slight breach of etiquette, skipping the triple dare, going right to the throat with the sinister triple dog dare. I don't understand some of these vows in the Old Testament, but the people of the day took them very seriously such that they had the force of law even more than that. 
Eli seems to know Samuel's news. Isn't that Samuel? Uh, saw Eli, guess what, man? <laughs> you won the Megabox! Because Samuel was not eager to tell him, and he tried to go back to sleep. So Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Oh, I get a kick out of that. Well, isn't that honorable of you, Eli, to acquiesce to the Creator? The salient part of the passage is what follows. Then Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. There's repetition throughout highlighting Samuel as a true faithful prophet of the Lord and Eli a has-been to put it mildly. The beginning of the restoration of order and peace and tranquility to God's people was now bound up in this young boy. Because with Samuel would now be a restoration of divine truth and divine authority. Solomon writing in the Proverbs says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. That is not an axiom. That is not a divine truth that is pertinent only to people of faith. It is an overall general truth which explains everything why I have to go in and talk to the governor of a state and tell him about the exceeding disgusting perversion that is taking place in the public schools to minors with their parents' encouragement. And it is only going to get worse. I have no reason to think otherwise. Eli and his sons discarded the truth and the authority. And God lovingly but sternly is calling his people back to himself as he does and continues even to this day. For those whom the Lord loves, writes the author of Hebrews, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. In closing, many, many years ago, Barbara and I were trained up in all kinds of things in the, as new Christian believers. And, of course, one was about how to do evangelism, how to tell people about Christ. And we had various tools that we would learn. And you've seen some of them, used some of them. The little tracks, as they're called. Uh, there's steps to peace with God. There's the four spiritual laws. There's the Romans road and all of that. And one of them that came out, and, and I actually believe it's since been changed, but I was using it, and the very first step is, here's what you say to the person. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And one day I happened to be talking to a believer. I didn't know that. And I identify, yeah, right, you know, basically take that fertilizer and sell it somebody somewhere else because... I am saved. I love the Lord. And my life has been little more than a living hell. So tell me about your wonderful life. And I thought, hmm, I 
think I'm going to reevaluate step number one. And I don't remember, I may have gone to four spiritual laws. I don't remember, it's been too many years. But I do remember in subsequent years and alluding to it or anything like that, instead of saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, I say God loves you and has a wondrous plan for your life. Say that's a different world and then explain it. Being faithful to God, being a follower of Christ, as we know all too well, every one of us in here to varying degrees, does not promise pristine skip to the loo, my darlings, every morning of your life. We live in a broken and fallen world, which is why injustice happens even to godly people. But our promise and what we look to is that one day there is a day of ultimate consummate justice that will come and reign. And all those who are wicked and evil will be brought low and God's people will stand as a wall of bronze before them. Lately, Barb has been telling me, okay, now be positive. I'm like, positive, be positive, got it. Start out with a with a you know with a, a good positive thing. Got it. Start out with a positive thing. And I'm telling you, I have tried. And no matter and I mean this morning was no difference. I started out with what I thought was positive. And then as I'm going through it, I'm praising it, I'm like, this sounds horrid. <laughs> but it is. It is a promise. His discipline is great and awesome because it's validation that he loves us. Woe be unto the person who is living a life of rabid sin and is not paying yet any kind of price for it. God does get to a place. Nobody knows it. Or where it is, but he does get to places where he goes, done. Don't believe that? Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. That's what that means. See, there I go, I'm getting negative again. But God loves you and has a wonderful, I mean a wondrous plan for your life. We need to stay on his heels. And we need to speak the truth in love if we care to one another. Let me have you stand. I got an email this morning, first thing from uh, Jim Higgs, one of our elders, and he said, I'm not going to be in church today. We're still without power. (laughs) And I said, brother, you just got to repent and quit that sin stuff, and you'd have your power. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. He's way bigger than I am. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Father in heaven, thank you for the hope of glory. Thank you for a certain future, assured, guaranteed, by your coming here living for us, providing the righteousness that we never could, dying for our sins, paying the price once for all and securing our place in eternity. And, O God, cause us to relinquish to your Holy Spirit your process of chiseling off those rough edges from us 
to make us more like you. Not to gain entrance to your heaven, but because we have it. In your name I pray. Amen.